When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Imagine being one of the most famous men in the world. A face, a name, associated with freedom, democracy, and victory. Who'll be remembered decades afterwards in books and movies and all kinds of media. But also imagine just weeks after the greatest triumph ever imagined for you or anyone else in your nation, that your fellow countrymen turn you around, and kick you out the door. It may seem implausible, but it's not. It actually happened to Winston Churchill, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He suffered a rather incomprehensible electoral defeat in 1945, the same year that the Allies claimed victory in World War II. For Churchill, after years of stress, serving as a coalition leader, head of government, and key ally figure. There was only one thing to do, get some rest and relaxation. And there was only one place to go, Miami. That's why we're going to review today, this day in Miami history, February 26th, 1946, the day that Sir Winston Churchill receives an honorary degree from the University of Miami. Now, before we get started, I want to let you know this is a very special episode of This Day in Miami History. We've taken to calling it a crossover episode. Uh, the reason why is because I had the opportunity to speak to Mr. Casey Paquette. Now, Casey is the host of the Miami History Podcast, a very similarly named podcast, a predecessor of This Day. Uh, Casey is an enormously important figure in the study of Miami history. Uh, his work on miami-history.com is critically important. It's a resource I reference on this show frequently. Uh, his work with Dr. Paul George on that podcast is exceptional. Uh, a couple of months ago, he sent me an email asking if he'd be interested and if I'd be interested in doing a crossover event, and I thought it was a fantastic idea. So we eventually settled on the topic of Winston Churchill. Uh, now, that allowed Casey to do his thing, and so our unique kind of episode is, is really a twofer. Um, his focus will be on the broader idea of the statesman tourists of Miami, uh, American and English figures who come to Miami to rest, relax, and try to get some work done. 
Uh, and then in the second half of the episode, we'll be talking a little bit more specifically about Churchill. I do hope you enjoy the entire episode. I think it's a fantastic discussion. Uh, I've added a little bit of my This Day Touch with some uh, selected audio from newsreels of the 1930s and 40s, and Casey's depth of knowledge about specifics in Miami history is, is truly second to none. Um, so without further ado, uh, here is me, Matthew Bunch, speaking with Casey Paquette of Miami History Podcast. This is the Miami History Podcast, and I'm Casey Paquette. Today I'm joined by, with a, by a special guest, Matthew Bunch, of uh, This Day in Miami History Podcast. And uh, we wanted to do a, a, a cross-podcast to talk about a really fascinating subject uh, that I think everyone's going to find um, very interesting between the two podcast audiences. And uh, uh, Matthew, I uh, just wanted to welcome you, and uh, thank you for joining. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Casey. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to be sitting here talking with you and talking to your audience, and, and I'm very happy to be able to share your podcast with my audience. And, you know, there are a lot of folks out there that really like Miami history, thankfully, for our, our purposes, and um, kind of bringing together the two of us, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, and I would completely agree. I uh, became a fan of your podcast, found it, uh, and of course, reached out to you to, to talk about, let's let's see if maybe we can do something together and kind of uh, expose our audiences to uh, a couple of different podcasts that are out there to discussing our favorite subject, Miami history. Uh, so uh, today's episode uh, is really going to focus on um, some very prominent people that uh, came to Miami during a period of time from 1920 to 1946. Uh, the title of this will be uh, Statesman Tourists in Miami, and really wanted to take some time to focus in on uh, some of the uh, head of states, uh, some of the presidents that have come down to Miami. Uh, and the reason we selected this time frame from 1920 to 46 is that we had some very prominent guests uh, that occurred at very uh, pivotal times in, in their their careers as states, statespeople or statesmen. Uh, where we'll start is with a series of presidents that selected Miami as the place that they would uh, come to visit as part of their pre-inaugural vacation. Uh, and that really uh, had uh, far-reaching implications, not just to, for Miami in terms of uh, really kind of focusing on how it had it arrived on a national stage, but it was also very pivotal for some of the work that they had uh, done during their working vacation between their election and the time that they got inaugurated. Uh, so where I'd like to start is, uh, as I mentioned, in uh, actually start not in 1920, but in January of 1921, uh, Warren G. Harding had just got elected president in November of 1920. Uh, matter of fact, he defeated a, a uh, another fellow Ohioan, Ohioan, they're both from Ohio, uh, uh, for the uh, for the presidency, and uh, that person was James Cox, who ended up getting talked into coming down, uh, relocating to Miami after that election, and uh, by Carl Fisher, who uh, Carl Fisher had a working relationship with James Cox. He talked him into uh, purchasing the Miami Metropolis, which he uh, later renamed the Miami Daily News, which got renamed to the Miami News, which was a, a big part of uh, capturing Miami, uh, Miami's news and history through the years. Uh, so Harding uh, decides that he's going to um, relax before his inauguration, before things get going uh, in March of 1921. Uh, so he decides to come down to Miami. Uh, he uh, chooses the Royal Palm Hotel as a place that he'd like to stay, uh, 
uh, during this visit. And uh, during the, particularly the first part of the visit, he had set up some meetings to help round out his cabinet. Matter of fact, he had uh, interviewed and made decisions on some cabinet posts that later became fairly infamous uh, and, uh, and associated with what was called the teapot, uh, teapot Dome Scandal. Uh, which was really a bribery scandal that plagued the Harding administration during his uh, short tenure. Uh, So he originally had come, uh, decided to come down and stay at the Royal Palm Hotel. Uh, And uh, according to a documentary on Carl Fisher in Miami Beach, uh, they claimed that that Fisher actually sort of hijacked Harding's time in Miami and uh, took him across the uh, the bay over to a, a fledgling, a, a developing Miami Beach. Uh, it was really starting to come into its own. However, I have to admit, I did find some articles that said that um, that that uh, Harding was planning on spending some time on Miami Beach. Uh, it just wasn't clear exactly the timing of that. But uh, so he ends up um, going and uh, checking into uh, uh, Fisher's brand new Flamingo Hotel, which opened up on January 1st, 1920. I think it's so interesting to look at Carl Fisher here. And as you're walking through just these couple of months, how much he is able to kind of bend the world around him and, and these these both presidential candidates both men running to become president of the united states ultimately have their futures really altered significantly by carl fisher in the case of of harding obviously come and pla- planning his presidency here and with cox to i mean the, the the mark of james cox on miami is is incalculable and again these are not men who were born in miami or had a connection to miami but they wind up bumping into Fisher and then everything changes. And now you have Freedom Tower in downtown and now you have presidents planning their cabinets. And it's just remarkable his ability to develop and his ability to promote. Exactly. And, and really the, the, the Royal Palm Hotel connection where he did have a lot of his working vacation, uh, and, and speaking of Warren G. Harding, uh, was still in its prime at that point, but only was going to be around for another 10 years. So it was really the last... Um, uh, of kind of one of the big visitors of, of uh, to Miami that, that stayed at that hotel. Uh, but like I said, uh, Fisher did a nice job of getting him connected to Miami Beach because what was happening as Harding was vacationing here, he was being followed by the press. There were photo opportunities. There were ro- radio broadcasts about what he was doing each and every day. So he ended up golfing on one, one of uh, Fisher's golf courses. Uh, he had, as a matter of fact, Rosie the Elephant is, was his caddy uh, for, for that. Uh, he ended up going down um, to a very exclusive um, uh, club, a fishing club called K uh, Cocolobus, uh, which was about 70 miles south on um, on Adams Key near Caesar's Creek. Uh, that became uh, a place that future presidents and future statesmen and, and VIPs and senators would all go um, go fishing down in that area. And the matter of fact, they called it an exclusive getaway for millionaires. Now. Today's vernacular, that would be billionaires, but, uh, but it was very exclusive to uh, people that came down uh, and, and to visit Miami looking for a very luxurious uh, vacation. And so Harding um, really uh, unknowingly uh, did a lot to really promote Miami Beach. Uh, sales after uh, his association with, uh, uh, with, with, the, uh, with Miami Beach and with Carl Fisher really began to pick up. And I think a lot of it had to do with the steam that was created by Fisher, <coughs> Fisher working him into, um, into his vacation. And uh, so, as mentioned, Harding um, 
was president uh, for a fairly short time. As a matter of fact, he died in office in 1923. Uh, his successor, or his vice president, was Calvin Coolidge. And really, Coolidge um, held the office for a very short time before he was up for re-election <clears throat> in 1924. And so Coolidge... Um, uh, took over. He did actually uh, win his election in 1924, although he did not spend his inaugural vacation in Miami. Uh, it wasn't until January 14th of 1928 that Calvin Coolidge um, uh, made his first trip to Miami. I was going to say, his nickname was Cool Cal, so I'm guessing maybe he didn't like the warm climates down here in Miami. Perhaps that's why he, he only visited for such a short period of time, as uh, as we'll talk about in a second. Yeah, and, and he... Um, he was a big visitor to Florida. It just Miami wasn't his apparently cup of tea at that point. Uh, but he uh, he was en route on January fourteenth, nineteen twenty eight, uh, down to Key West to take a ferry down to Cuba for the Pan American Conference, uh, and. Uh, Somebody had organized it to where he had a fairly short stop in Miami, so he took the train down from D.C., arrived on January 14th uh, at the downtown FEC location, and they put him in a car and they put him on a parade route where thousands of people lined the parade route just to see their president. And so, uh, the in total, the the route um, from the time he left the station until he returned was a little bit more than an hour. Uh, but a lot of people had gotten in Miami, gotten a, an opportunity to uh, to to, uh, to see the president before he left uh, and went down to Key West. Um, so it, it really begins to show that Miami is a fairly prominent place that president statesmen really look to as a place they needed to stop. And when you look here, you know, January 1928, the the city is. Uh, in its way, attempting to still recover from 1926 through the Great Hurricane and the destruction and the economic slowdown um, that had started to take place in Miami that would eventually kind of spread across the rest of the country. Um, You know, Calvin Coolidge comes here, has the proverbial layover in the pre-airline period of time before presidents would take Air Force One. Um, but, But it is interesting that even then at this time, you know, modern campaigning is getting to the point that presidents realize, hey, maybe it's good if I if I stop and show face, wave hands, sh- you know, kiss babies, uh, and, and do all that bef- before I hit the road and head to Havana. Exactly, and and that's a classic example of that. And and I think a lot of the prominence of Miami from a national stage and even international stage was the fact that William Jennings Bryan in the early 1900s um, uh, established a presence in Miami, really spoke highly of Miami. Uh, editor Arthur Brisbane probably, you know, had more reach uh, in terms of news- newspaper distribution, um, uh, would constantly talk about Miami during this era and, and how beautiful it was. And uh, so it, it really was on the map. There were a lot of people that, you know, if you look at the growth of Miami from 1910 through 1930, it had grown considerably. And it was it was an important stop for really any president. Um, so Really, that takes us to Herbert Hoover. So Calvin Coolidge decides not to run uh, for a uh, another term in 1928. Uh, Herbert Hoover, his vice president, does run, and he does win, and he plans his pre-inauguration vacation to come down to Miami as well. I think a lot of it had to do with um, a, a good friend of his had offered up his almost his entire island, but definitely offered up his estate. J.C. Penney uh, offered up his estate on Bell Island. 
So JCPenney, uh, I believe I read where he and his wife um, were in Europe, but they they made the entire compound, which included a guest cottage. Uh, I think even a neighbor offered up um, their home for uh, staff uh, and offered up pretty much all of Belle Island at the time uh, for Hoover to take um, what uh, a vacation that uh, that began on January 22nd and um, and ended on February 18th. So these were fairly long vacations between the election and inauguration. Yeah, a month in Miami in from late January to to late February sounds pretty nice. And 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 Penny, um, you know, the famous retailer, uh, their stores are, are still open. I got one at Dadeland yep. uh, that I visit from time to time. Um, he was really influential in. The Miami civic community. Once he once he moves in, he he's an essential figure in the early history of the University of Miami, mm-hmm. which will come up a little bit later. Um, and um, you know, a lot of people think that that's just a name that gets slapped on a store. There's a real person and and it's a person that has a real important connection to Miami. Yeah. So when you had you know some of these uh, you know uh, big names that that have made themselves made made their names for themselves in business, regardless of industry, and they came down to Miami, they did get involved. You know, they may have gotten involved, uh, you know, in, in real estate. They may have gotten involved in the establishment of institutions, as you alluded to with University of Miami. There's, uh, you know, it wasn't just a place for somebody to stay for a few months and uh, to hide out on their uh, on their estate. So it was uh, it, it was it was quite a you know quite a place at the time. And I think a big part of that too. Um you know, there are definitely stories of people who think they're just coming for the winter and then they move down. And I think a big attraction for people like Penny and, and others in the early civic community is if you're coming from, you know, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, the, the civic community there is centuries old. You know, uh, you know, you've got the Brahmins in Boston that, you know, run the city. In Miami, in, in, in this early period, everything's up for grab. There's not a university yet. Well, okay, I can be involved in the founding of a university, be a figure like that. It's quite appealing. And so the the, the cost to entry um, are, are lower, not necessarily in terms of, of money, but in terms of social capital. Um, and I, I think that really can't be overstated, the idea that that very important people in our city's history they, they can just get and go. They don't have to fight these headwinds of these established forces. They become the established forces mm-hmm. by just taking action. And at least be a part of it. True. Very true. Very, very good observation on, on really the impact of people that came down and established down, themselves down here, particularly at, at that point when Miami had a very young history. So uh, getting back to Herbert Hoover. So he, he comes down on uh, January 22nd in a, in a private rail car. Very similar to the Coolidge visit, he uh, there is a, a parade route that's established. Uh, the parade route takes him from, again, the downtown FEC train station uh, in route to Belle Isle. And uh, there, Flagler Street was lined with banners, you know, welcoming the president-elect. And uh, and really, once the president got settled over at the J.C. Penney estate, uh, one of his objectives was to... Uh, meet and greet with some of his uh, cabinet members, make some selections of cabinet members, but his most important task was to write his inauguration speech. And uh, it was said that he uh, he would retreat to the cottage house that was offered up by the pennies to uh, to use as his office to, to, to write that speech. Uh, and then he would also have press conferences, and they used the boathouse as, as a place where they met with the press, and he spoke with um, you know, writers from different... Um, you know, different publications, uh, the, the big ones of the time. 
And uh, but more importantly, uh, particularly from the enjoyment part of it, is that he really wanted to go fishing. And his goal, he had never caught a billfish, and so he went out fishing a lot. And it wasn't until um, uh, let me look at my date here. It wasn't until January thirtieth that uh, on a, uh, a fishing trip that uh, one of many that he actually caught a billfish. As the story went, is that some of his aides, who were also fishing with him, uh, caught bigger billfish at the time. So it kind of put a little bit of a damper on his excitement <laughs> for catching a billfish, finally. But uh, he did enjoy himself. Uh, you know, and that vacation lasted, uh, as I mentioned on up front, that it lasted all the way to February 18th. But he also had a, a run-in of sorts, which really kind of generated some mythological stories of, about his interaction with this individual. Uh, and I'll let Matthew, I'll, tell you, I'll let you tell that story. For sure. So at this time, again, there's maybe no more interesting time in Miami. Maybe you look at the 80s or uh, whatever, but this late 20s period, there's so many different currents going on at the same time. And about a mile away from Belle Isle as the crow f- flies is Palm, uh, is Palm Island. Um, and on Palm Island at the time lived Al Capone. Um, uh, he had moved down from Chicago. He had sworn off the life of the gangster, reportedly, allegedly, you know, according to sources. Um, he was still avoiding the law and, and, and ran into um, uh, you know, local law enforcement from time to time and, and local elected officials or weren't, some of them were very happy about it and some of them weren't too happy about it. But uh, the, the idea of basically the, the president-elect of the United States being uh, uh, literally a stone's throw away if you, if you skip the stone enough away from this mobster is um, is press fodder. Uh, and so uh, the just the, it's 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 one of these great things about Miami. All these different forces kind of meeting together at the same time. Uh, it, it's fascinating. Um, so I, we were kind of talking before we started recording. The idea of them actually encountering one another, I think, is apocryphal. You might know better than I, I do, Casey, on this yeah. one. But there are always these these suggestions and 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 possibilities um, of of this kind of uh, legendary meeting. Yeah, I, I would say that it was probably unlikely. If there if there's any character in Miami's history that's been associated with uh, more salacious, you know, kind of stories that are very interesting, but uh, you know, if it, it, I've heard some people say that if everything were true about Al Capone, there would have had to have been fifty Al Capones because he <laughs> they had him everywhere. Um, and the uh, the the thing about Capone and that that relationship and the timing was that one of the stories was that Capone and his gang were having very loud and raucous parties that, you know, that it just disturbed the very uh, quiet time that uh, Hoover was, was looking to have on Belle Isle, which really shows you the difference in time because today anywhere in Miami and Miami beach is, is you're going to have noise. There's, there's, it's a party kind of city and you you do have noise all the time Uh, that, uh, that, that led, um, Hoover to, uh, to to really sick the IRS on him and, and really make sure that they got him. I'm sure they had plenty of other reasons to pursue him <laughs> other than just that. But another story was that they actually ran into each other at a hotel lobby and that uh, Hoover was being interviewed in the lobby and then all of a sudden Capone walks in and all the reporters go, go to Capone and, and that that really kind of bruised his ego. But I, I don't think that those two were probably in the same hotel lobby at the same time, particularly, you know, Hoover, who would... Um, uh, you know, really had a, had a very nice situation on Belle Isle. I don't think he'd have any need to go to a hotel. 
But uh, yeah, some of these stories have, have really circulated and have been uh, interesting uh you know, to share, but uh, there's there's no proof that any of them are true. There's so much good real stuff about Capone that we know for sure. Um, there's there's no sense in wading into the, uh, the the silly stories, although the silly stories are fun. They are fun. <laughs> okay, so moving on to the next and really the last president to in, to to spend any amount of time in Miami as part of their pre inauguration vacation um, was was. Uh, a few years later, uh, at the end of Hoover's term. So Hoover, of course, really uh, presided over a very difficult time. You had the stock market crash happen at the end of his inaugural year. Uh, and from that point in time, things just went downhill, and as did his presidency. And so when the election of 1932 came along, uh, he was uh, resoundingly defeated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who incidentally was uh, James Cox's running mate in 1920. So to kind of tie it all the way back to, uh, to where we started with this conversation. But he, uh, he wins his election. And after he wins the election, uh, he chooses Florida as, as the place he would go for his pre-inaugural vacation. So he travels down to Jacksonville. Uh, and he uh, departs, because he was also a big fisherman, on Vincent Astor's uh, yacht to go fishing for, for a couple of weeks. They were out on the yacht for a while. So the original plan was for them to go fishing up and down the Florida coast and then him to return to Jacksonville, take a train back up to D.C. Uh, however, the powers that be in Miami really wanted him to speak and uh, you know in front of the, uh, the, the, the citizens of Miami. And so they, they talked him into uh, coming all the way down to Miami uh, just for a day for him to speak at Bayfront Park. And really the uh, revelry, the excitement uh, was building, particularly during a very tough time for Miami. At this point, it's 1933, we're a good seven years into our Great Depression because it really began with the, the, uh, the hurricane of 26. So they plan a, uh, a big event where Roosevelt would speak briefly, uh, but there were, I believe, 30,000 people that uh, showed up at Bayfront Park. Now, my grandmother was a really big fan of FDR. She saved a lot of clippings from the time he got elected until his death um, about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and I'm pretty sure she probably was at, that, at Bayfront Park at the time because she, she was born in Miami. And so, um, so Roosevelt uh, agrees to, uh, to to come to Miami. And, and by the way, before I go further into the story, I should mention that Vincent Astor, if anyone's ever heard the story about the little kid that um, that celebrated Christmas before the Royal Palm Hotel opened, uh, his father, John Jacob Astor, uh, showed up right before Christmas, uh, December 19, uh, 1896, to celebrate Christmas. Um, and the staff actually cut down a, a tree, a Christmas tree, and decorated it and put presents underneath for his son, uh, and that his son was little uh, Vincent Astor. Wow. Uh, in 1912, uh, his father actually went down with the Titanic, just to really tie in the Astor family to a variety of very well-known historic events. So uh, uh, FDR is uh, finishing up his fishing trip with Vincent Astor. They come down to Miami, go to, I believe, Pier 5 or whatever I think Pier 5 was up and running at that point. Uh, take a, uh, a motorcade uh, to Bayfront Park to the, uh, to the band shell where he would give a speech. And um, it was supposed to be just a very simple speech for him to be seen, wave. My friends of Miami, I am not a stranger here. 
because for a good many years I used to come down here. I haven't been here for seven years, but on my coming back, I have firmly resolved not to make it the last time. Uh, but unbeknownst to him, there was uh, a, a, an anarchist in the uh, in the crowd who had it uh, in his mind that he was going to assassinate FDR. Not because he had anything personal against FDR, but simply because uh, FDR was a world leader and he he was a bricklayer. He lived in Miami, and he decided it was uh, you know it was opportunity uh, um, kind of you know meeting with uh, his his ability to. To do what he's always, you know, said he wanted to do, which is to take out a world leader. Uh, so he got up on a uh, wobbly uh, foldable chair um, and uh, with a with almost a cap gun. It was a small gun. I don't remember the exact make, but he he got off five shots. And uh, all aimed at FDR, uh, and he none of them hit FDR. Matter of fact, I, I think um, all five hit something. A couple of those shots ended up hitting the mayor of Chicago, Anton Cermak, who was down to meet with the president. He actually, it was sort of happen chance that he came to Miami because he was supposed to meet with him in Jacksonville, but was late getting there. And so he redirected his trip to Miami to come down and, and just briefly have words with them, particularly around providing help to some of the veterans up in the Chicago area, which were really hurting at that point. Uh, and so Zangara uh, ends up shooting uh, Cermak, uh, Roosevelt, uh, after the crowd subdued Zangara, you know, he ends up getting arrested. But um, uh, FDR, just to kind of give you a sense of, of, of his, you know, grasp of the moment, he ends up putting Cermak in his car because there was no way an ambulance was going to get in there fast, fast enough. And they drove him to uh, Jackson Memorial Hospital. And uh, it was at the, you know at that point that Cermak uh, began care and unfortunately succumbed to his injuries a, a couple weeks later. Uh, that really led to Cermak first pleading guilty to attempted uh, attempted assassination or attempted murder. Uh, once Cermak died, he was put in front of the judge again. He was fa- he was given a charge of murder, and he you know did not he he pleaded guilty to that as well which led him to uh, be put onto death row at Rayford, and it didn't last very long. I think from the time of the event until his execution, six weeks went by. And uh, just to give you an idea of how defiant he was throughout the whole process, is that even in the electric chair, they asked him if he had any last words. His last words were, push it to button. He was an Italian immigrant, had a thick and Italian accent, and um, that, was, that was his final words. Yeah, when you, when you look at this event, this is one of the great what-ifs in all of history um, because of how much Franklin Roosevelt ev- eventually ties himself to the mast of American history, how much American history has changed between March 4th, 1933 and his death in April of 1945. And, and the idea that it was very plausible that he never even took office um, and and how literally the, the the changing of the angle of a gun by a degree would have completely radically changed American history and that happening in Miami um, it's just it's just fascinating um, additionally you mentioned um, and, and there's some really great information um, on this is is the eyewitnesses around um, Zangara 
um, who basically subdue him, um, you know, it's it's the crowd. He is, he's very much mixed in with the crowd, and the crowd realizes what's happening, and, and they do their best. And I believe there's a, there's a, um, a young woman um, that grabs him and, and tries to impede him, and I, I seem to remember um, um, an eyewitness interview with her. And now, the heroine, the woman whose courage all the world applauds. She probably saved Mr. Roosevelt's life by deflecting the assassin's aim. Mrs. W.F. Cross of Miami. My first thought was to get it. I knew he was shooting at the president, so my first thought was to get the pistol up in the air so he wouldn't hurt any of the bystanders. It's just, it's very much a, uh, everything is up in the air. So more than perhaps any moment American in American history, in Miami history especially, there's there's so much uncertainty in those those moments. And and Cermak, you know, the mayor of Chicago, winds up being um, the man who pays the price here um, with his life. Um, but Sangara, you know, when, when you think about the, the figures that actually do kind of change history like this, I mean, obviously the name that comes to mind is Franz Ferdinand, kind of launching World War One. Uh, you know, it's unlikely this would have launched a war, but you, you can absolutely completely redraw American history if he is slightly more accurate. Exactly. And uh, he, he was not known as a marksman. Matter of fact, he bought the gun at a, at a pawn shop, probably grabbed whatever, whatever was available, which wasn't much, and uh, in downtown Miami, by the way. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly what brought Zangara to Miami. He was a bricklayer. He was probably looking for work. He was probably out of work. Um, I know he kind of moved from flop house to flop house around Miami at that time, so um, it, it was just uh, it was just happenstance that he he was there at a time that he was really just kind of losing it, and and really blamed all world leaders for his situation. Matter of fact, he also was suffering from um, uh, he uh, he had a diseased gallbladder, so he he was suffering from the inside as well, and and he, he probably impacted him mentally, which. Uh, Obviously, he uh, he had a lot of issues there. All the time in the mine, I get a capitalist to kill me. I suffer from this thing in the stomach for the capitalist. So no, for the capitalist, and I have this sickness in my stomach. So, uh, matter of fact, we're, we're recording this the day after the 90th anniversary of that. So today is February 16th. <clears throat> that occurred on February 15th, 1933. So um, the next thing that... Um, uh, topic that we're going to talk about, and really our final topic, which we're, we're going to jump from 1933 to 1946. But before we do that, we're just going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, another statesman uh, that really had an impact in his visit in, to Miami uh, in the uh, the winter of 1946. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. Uh, So we left off at talking about some of the uh, presidential visits between 1920 and 1933, really uh, focused on the statesmen that uh, looked to Miami as a place for uh, a respite, uh, rest, relaxation, but also a working vacation. And uh, we're going to jump up a, a few years in time, all the way to 1946, when another very prominent statesman had decided to come to uh, South Florida for a vacation, uh, or for a holiday, as they would probably call it. Uh, for that, I'm going to uh, turn this over to Matthew uh, to talk about uh, Winston Churchill. Thank you very much, Casey. So um, the Miami History Podcast is so great because it covers the the broad sweeps of Miami history, as we've done so far. And this day, we, we tend to focus on a single day. And uh, this day in Miami history, February 26th, 1946, Winston Churchill spoke at the Orange Bowl and received an honorary degree from the University of Miami. Um, we're going to talk about that, obviously, but before we do that, we, we need to know the rest of the story. And really, the rest of the story goes back uh, almost you know, to a previous century. Um, Churchill, uh, who would eventually become Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, um, spent time in Cuba. Um, in the build-up to the Spanish-American War, um, as a member of um, uh, the armed forces uh, in the UK, he traveled to Cuba uh, and really loved Cuba, uh, and he would go back eventually. He, he did enjoy his time there. This was still during uh, the Spanish colonial period. He spends some time there, eventually goes home um, and, and starts to build uh, a political career, and that political career would see him rise to uh, the most significant position of governmental power, the head of government in the UK, prime minister. Um, as the clouds of war are building in Europe and as the conservative project of appeasement with Adolf Hitler fails, um, Churchill is ultimately called in to replace Neville Chamberlain, is, is called in to, to step up to take leadership, um, ultimately as England w- will get dragged into the war. Um, an interesting figure in in all of this, and someone who will have a Miami connection, does have a Miami connection, is Edward VIII. Um, Edward VIII is king. However, he falls in love. And for monarchs in the United Kingdom, this can be a problem if you're not falling in love with the right person. Uh, the person he falls in love with is a Baltimore socialite, uh, Wallace Simpson. And at the time, the king cannot marry a commoner, cannot marry an American, cannot marry all kinds of people. Um, and ultimately, he chooses to abdicate. Um, he leaves. Uh, his brother, George V, takes over. George V, who will lead England, lead the United Kingdom as the head of state during World War II alongside Churchill. And Edward essentially is told to get lost. Um, and he eventually settles in the Caribbean and as part of his time there with Wallace Simpson, visits Miami. 
Um, uh, it was not a big celebrated visit. He was not uh, a hugely celebrated figure. Um, when he came, it was for dental surgery. And the Duchess and I are naturally very glad to set foot in America again. Although it is pretty tough on her to have to undergo a dental operation the first time she returns to her native land after so many years. However, we hope that she will get well quickly and that we shall be able to enjoy a few days rest and quiet to see something of Miami and Florida before we go back to the Bahamas. You know, I guess he could get better dental work done in South Florida than he could in uh, in the Bahamas, uh, the, you know, the UK territory at that point. Uh, but that is a statesman coming to Miami, but not the statesman we're going to focus on coming to Miami. So Churchill uh, takes over, leader of the United Kingdom, this legendary figure in English political history and English military history, um, survives uh, what appeared to be a colossal failure. Dunkirk manages a successful evacuation, rebuilds, helps lead the UK during the battle for Britain, helps aligns with the United Kingdom and with the Soviet Union, the noted anti-communist Churchill, aligning with the Soviet Union, eventually forming the alliance that will defeat the Axis powers and win World War II. Um, in the United Kingdom, they have a parliamentary system of government. Uh, and during this system, during this time, during the war, all the major parties agree to form coalition. There is not a competitive election. Churchill is the prime minister, but there are deputy prime ministers from each of the major parties. Basically, all the domestic infighting is put to the side. And the main focus, for obvious reasons, is winning the war. Um, now, in our presidential system, we're not very familiar with that because we have constitutionally required elections. Um, and uh, Rose, the aforementioned Franklin Roosevelt wins convincingly in... 32, 36, 40, and 44. But there's no competitive election basically for, for years, six years in the UK until July 1945. After victory in Europe, in April of 1945, the coalition dissolves, as is to be expected, and people want to vote. Um, a lot of Americans would expect that because Winston Churchill is the face of the victory of war, that he's going to go to a sweeping success. Uh, even Harry Truman, who's the vice president at the conclusion of the war in 1945, manages to kind of have this upset victory in 48, three years later. You would think two months after the conclusion of the war that Churchill would be able to carry his party over the line. Uh, this is dramatically wrong. Um, the conservative party of which he is the head loses convincingly to the liberal to the Labour Party in July of 1945. It's the first time that the Labour Party actually gets a true majority of votes. Again, in a parliamentary system, you have multiple parties, so getting a majority can be really hard. They win a majority. The conservatives are demolished, and in in kind of the post-mortem of the election, basically the belief is one. The Conservative Party is associated with winning the war, but it was also associated with appeasement. It was the Conservative Party that pursued that policy in the first place. And two, it was the Conservative Party in charge of the United Kingdom during the Great Depression. And there was a great concern among voters that the Conservative Party's return to domestic power would lead to a return to domestic policies that would raise unemployment. Uh, and secondly, which is kind of surprising to a lot of American audiences, I think, when they learn this, the deciding factor in a lot of the parliamentary elections was military votes from soldiers still on the front lines in Europe who hadn't returned home. And those ballots were convincingly against Churchill. Uh, it turns out that officers loved Churchill. Soldiers on the front lines didn't hold him in as high of esteem as 
their leadership did. And ultimately, that was the deciding blow in the election. The Labour Party um, comes into power, uh, and Churchill is kind of left adrift um, to a degree. He's still in Parliament. He wins his seat, but he would no longer be Prime Minister. He would be leader of the opposition. And this was an enormous change for Churchill, who had been one of the key figures not only in England, not only in the United Kingdom, but in the world for the previous six years. Literally, he leaves uh, 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 the Potsdam Conference uh, to go back to see the results uh, and can't go back because he's no longer the prime minister. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an earth-shaking event in UK politics, and, and Churchill is left in the lurch. So he leaves office, and he goes to see a doctor, and the doctor basically looks at Churchill and says, and no offense to the uh, departed Churchill, but as any one of us could imagine, if you've seen a picture of Churchill in 1945, uh, he was not the picture of health. Uh, and his, his doctor basically said, Winston, you got to get out of here. You, you, you got to take some time. You got to take some rest uh, and, and, and just get away. Um, he still had governmental responsibilities as leader of the opposition, uh, but he does take the advice, and he decides he's going to get somewhere warm and sunny, and he picks Miami. He picks Miami because of a relationship with a man named Colonel, uh, Colonel Frank Clark. Uh, Clark is a Canadian uh, with a home in Miami Beach. Uh, they had met at a previous conference that Clark had hosted um, in Canada, um, but they they really struck it up after the meeting, and um, Clark offers the invitation and away to South Florida, Churchill comes. Um, it wasn't easy uh, because every country, but particularly England, was still in a period of austerity. And the government had taken measures, his own government, had taken measures to reduce the amount of pound sterling flowing out of England and into foreign countries to assist uh, the domestic co- economy in its healing. Um, but he is eventually able to move money around, eventually able to move pieces around on the proverbial chessboard and make sure that he, his wife, and a couple of aides are able to come to South Florida and stay at Clark's house for almost two months. And so in January 1946, Winston Churchill arrives in Miami uh, with a hero's welcome. Uh, but there are ten words which, um, or there are about ten, which come uh, very readily to my mind, and that is the great pleasure I have in feeling the genial sunshine of Miami Beach. He, he's able to settle in, and really the main focus is rest. Unlike those working vacations we talked about earlier with the presidents who have all these inaugurations and cabinet picks to make, Churchill doesn't have much on his plate, and he decides to enjoy everything that Miami has to offer. Um, in the, the almost two months that he's here, um, his main focus is painting. Um, in fact, one of his paintings of uh, the Venetian Causeway uh, went up for auction just a few years ago in 2016 and, and fetched a pretty penny. Um, you know, Churchill was no Picasso or, or, um, or, 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 or you know, remarkable artist, but he was a pretty skilled painter. Um, and he produced a number of paintings here in South Florida. Yeah, it, getting back to the, the, uh, the, the painting that he, he uh, uh, Created on on uh, basically it's Toledo Island uh, on the Venetian Islands, uh, he was just driving around and and he was inspired when he was driving around Toledo and he uh, uh, on the north side of the island just just had his driver had you know stop he took out his easel and he started painting and he did this uh, late afternoon and uh, he really wanted just a moment to himself uh, some privacy and then all of a sudden uh, a reporter a photographer had had kind of stumbled upon this and and decided and asked him if he could take his picture. 
Well, at this point, it's getting fairly late in the day. Uh, you know, in the winter months, you know, it gets dark a little bit earlier than it does in the summer months. Uh, Churchill really didn't want his picture taken, but agreed to do it if, if the uh, photographer took a photograph of what he was painting so that he could use the photograph to finish the painting because he wasn't quite finished with it. So that Delito um, uh, Island uh, painting that went up in that auction really was uh, at the assistance of a photographer that really just wanted to get a picture and probably had a, a pretty good scoop because uh, nobody else had that picture. And uh, it was actually published, uh, the photograph of of Churchill next to his easel uh, in the in, in the local papers. Um, so it was a bit of an iconic moment uh, based upon an impromptu decision to start painting. And I think the, the word impromptu is really uh, something that uh, kind of reappears in this whole trip because the whole idea was not to burden his schedule with a thousand events and a thousand different appearances and all that. He spends a lot of time at this home, um, you know, 5905 North Bay Road, Miami Beach, Clark's home in Miami Beach. And there are reports of people. He's just there sitting on the porch and painting or resting or talking. And people walk by and wave hi to him and he waves back. Um, it, it's really designed to be priority one, rest and relax and do the things that are needed to do to kind of let his batteries recharge. Um, and so he's here for about a month and, and really in this this, this period of time, a little bit more than a month, there are two big things that develop on his agenda. Um, thing one, I'll, I'll talk about um, uh, first, and then we'll, we'll get to the second thing that people are probably more familiar with. Um, but thing one is the University of Miami takes notice and decides to host a special event for Churchill. Um, and they decide they're going to, at a convocation, present Churchill with an honorary degree. Um, and Casey, I know you can speak to this a little bit, but when we think of our modern sporting venues, you know, the, uh, the Miami Dade arena, as it currently is called, and by the time the episode is released, they might've found a new sponsor who knows, but, um, you know, hard rock stadium, we think of these as, as almost private spaces, you know, you need a ticket and you're going for a particular event and the dolphins decide who performs at the stadium and the heat decide who performs at the arena. Um, but the orange bowl, because it was owned by the city of Miami is really a public space, a, a, a space for the community and the variety of events that take place at the orange bowl in its history are, are so vast. And, and this is just one of them, but you know, I, I think of, um, you know, the return of the Bay of pigs, um, uh, prisoners or Orange Bowl parades and different events. There's just such a large variety. And there is, and it, it really was a very flexible space. Uh, but, but you know, it really wasn't a public space like a, like a park or a green space. It was, uh, it was certainly a venue for, for rent, but it was rented across a variety of different uh, uh, types of events, you know, concerts. Uh, uh, really, um, the high school football games were the big events that took place long before there were the Dolphins, long before there were rock concerts that would fill up rock, you know, uh, football stadiums. Um, and, and so it, it really was a very flexible, uh, you know, venue that could be used for a lot of different things and was. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's probably the one institution that has gone down within the last 20 years that uh, people lament the most. You know, it's like, how, how do you not save the Orange Bowl? How, how do we not find a way 
to make adaptive use out of that 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 great institution really had a lot of great luck as well i mean if you look at the miami hurricanes performing there their last championship years were in the early 2000s still played in the orange bowl the miami dolphins their five super bowls they played the regular season games in the orange bowl all the different super bowl games that were hosted there uh but it really is a lost venue, and um, it's just one of those things that I think, for longtime Miamians, as you look back, you just, you know, you really feel bad that it's not there, even though it was replaced with another stadium. It just, it's not the same. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Churchill is invited. It's it's not a small convocation event. There's a, more than seventeen thousand people um, that attend on February twenty sixth, um, and he. In his speech, um, you know, he's, he's always one to crack a joke. I am surprised that in my later life, I should have become so experienced in taking degrees when, as a schoolboy, I was so bad at passing examinations. <laughs> in fact, one might almost say that no one ever passed so few examinations and received so many degrees. Um, but he also, in the speech, addresses the connection that exists between the University of Miami and, and the United Kingdom. And, and it, it might come as a surprise, but what was really key to UM's development in the 40s, from the Cardboard College into what, what we know now, was an influx of federal money, uh, specifically related to military training. And, and more than 1,200 Royal Air Force navigators received training at the University of Miami. Um, you know, they, they train at UM in the sun, um, and then they're able to return home and, and help win the war effort. And so Churchill was, um, you know, more than just speaking at a regular old university, he really did want to speak to UM um, in gratitude, not only for receiving the degree, but in gratitude for what the community in Miami had done to bring these soldiers in and, and, and house them and feed them, and also the university as an institution for training them and, and, and giving them the skills necessary uh, to come home and win the war. Yeah, I, I do want to mention that we keep referring to it as the Orange Bowl, but at the time that the event occurred, it was called Roddy Burdine Stadium. Absolutely. And Roddy Burdine, um, it was named for him because of all the uh, effort that he put in. He served on committees to really um, get funding for um, for the stadium, but was really a, 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 a great advocate for Miami and, and, and what sports could mean really for tourism and bringing people and making Miami – uh, more high profile. He ended up dying um, at the time uh, that the stadium was uh, was finishing, and, and they named it in his honor. Uh, they renamed it because it was most well-known for hosting the Orange Bowl game. They renamed it in the early 1950s to the Orange Bowl. But at the time, it was at Roddy Burdine Stadium. So if you go back and look at some of the articles covering the Churchill honorary degree and his speech there, they'll refer to it as Roddy Burdine Stadium. Yes, a, a hugely important figure in, in early Miami history is is Mr. Burdine and, and a legendary real, uh, retailer, um, you know, that now Macy's has largely taken over, has completely taken over uh, those retail locations. But if you were going to buy stuff in Miami for decades, you were going through the Burdine family. Um, so Churchill concludes his speech uh, to the crowd. It's, it's a huge event for the university. Again, at this point in time, um, the, the university is only just emerging from 
the shadow of the 1926 hurricane. For 20 years, uh, the school is is housed basically in a converted hotel, um, for the most part, <clears throat> with some buildings having been erected during the war on what, what we now know as the main campus. But this is a huge turning point because it, it is local, national, and international recognition uh, for the school. And, and as the school enters the 1950s, this is when everything starts to change for it. And, and Churchill does play an important role in that. Um, it is fun to see him at the lectern, you know, on the podium, speaking at the Orange Bowl, this kind of famous figure in world history in such a familiar local setting. Uh, it's always fun to see those images. Absolutely. And, um, you know, some other, uh, prior to that event, some other very notable institutions that Churchill visited more in a capacity of leisure was the Hylia racetrack. You know, you would figure that if you're, you know, if you're trying to relax and not get the blood pressure up, maybe the racetrack isn't the place to go. But <laughs> True. Yeah, so there's there's a photograph of him entering the Hylia racetrack. He also, another place that he painted was at the surf club. Matter of fact, the surf club, after they renovated the hotel into what it is today, it's now Four Seasons. Uh, it's my understanding in part of the older building of the surf club, they have a, a, a painting of him. Uh, painting <laughs> at the surf club. And then, of course, uh, Parrot Jungle. Uh, and that's something that uh, a lot of early Miamians remember being celebrated that Winston Churchill went there. And uh, of course, now everything is uh, part of Jungle Island, but Parrot Jungle was, you know, in South Dade at that point. For sure. One of the one of the biggest tourist spots in, in early Miami, like it kind was. of as we associate now as the, you know, uh, taking a road trip and going somewhere is kind of like a, a tourist trap as a negative connotation. But w- where you actually go out of your way to visit uh, Parrot, um, Parrot Jungle, uh, certainly there. And again, now they've they've moved to a more central location. Well, a little bit of a sidetrack is that uh, I found pictures of Brickell Avenue, which is part of US-1 or the Dixie Highway, and you would see um, bus benches uh, along Brickell Avenue that had advertisement for Parrot Jungle. So as the tourists were coming south, they may stay at some of the motels along the Dixie Highway, along US-1, uh, but they would see advertisements for the Parrot Jungle. It's just sort of a trigger for them to, oh, maybe that's a place that will take the family. For sure. So Churchill concludes his speech. He receives his degree. There is one more big thing on his agenda, and, and Miami plays a really important role in all of this. Um, what he is actually most famous for, uh, for that visit in 1946, is not his speech to the University of Miami. Um, He delivers a second speech. Um, The speech is formally titled The Sinews of Peace. Uh, It's more informally known as the Iron Curtain speech, one of the most significant foreign policy speeches of the 20th century. From Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an Iron Curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. He delivers this speech on the invitation of President Harry S. Truman. Truman asks him to speak in Missouri um, and before he goes back to, to Great Britain. Um, and Churchill does decide that that's going to be the one uh, working part of this leisure vacation. And so in the time he's in Miami, particularly in February, because the speech is delivered in March, um, he is at the, the Clark House 
um, working on this speech, talking about the danger that he sees from the Soviet Union in Europe. And again, to kind of put the timeline in place here, it's important to remember the war had just concluded less than a year earlier. The Soviet Union had been a key ally in that fight, but Churchill was always an uncomfortable ally with Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union because he was particularly anti-Soviet. In fact, one of the missteps in 1945 during the um, the parliamentary election campaign um, was that once the coalition dissolves, um, he is very eager to point out that he believes the labor policies put forth are socialists, and he calls them socialists, and um, he talks about the fact that socialists will become communists and communists will lead to um, Gestapo. That no socialist system can be established without a political police. Many of those who are advocating socialism or voting socialists today will be horrified at this idea. That is because they are short-sighted. And, and a lot of people in the Labor Party take this particularly hard because they had just worked together weeks before. And a lot of voters held that against Churchill, and it really hurt um, the conservatives. And so this anti-communist perspective that he has hurts him politically in July of 1945. But in terms of viewing the danger that the Soviet Union presents, the fact that he was such an uncomfortable ally to Stalin kind of works in his favor because – he is right. His analysis in the Iron Curtain speech is pretty much bang on, um, and it, it eventually really affects American foreign policy for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and so Miami plays this very important role in his time here um, in helping him to shape the speech. Again, the, the idea of being able to really zone in on what he wants to say and to be able to say it carefully and correctly and, and putting the words together the way he wants. And, and again, this concept of the Iron Curtain – um, is developed in Miami and shared with the world at this speech in Missouri. It, it is amazing how many different speeches were uh, either conceived, written part in part, rehearsed in Miami before they were delivered in a very famous context. You know, uh, Martin Luther King's speech, you know, I Have a Dream, was either partly written or rehearsed at the Hampton House. So there's a lot of, you know, and then we talked about uh, Hoover writing his inauguration speech. We've got uh, Winston Churchill's speech. So there's, there's a, lot of, um, a lot of connections of Miami to, to fair, fairly famous uh, speeches that were delivered around the world. One of my favorites is uh, the aforementioned uh, William Jennings Bryan preparing for the Scopes Monkey Trial yes. in Miami. Literally, yeah. before he goes to Tennessee, um, he spends about a month in Miami at, at his home. I mean, he, 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 he did live here, but he had a very busy travel schedule, but he came back here for a month to get ready, to get in the right mental space and prepare. Um, and yeah, and Churchill joins in that, that mm-hmm. long legacy of people that, that enjoy the sun and the relaxation that Miami can offer uh, in this period of time. So he speaks at Westminster College in uh, Fulton, Missouri, the home state of Harry S. Truman. Perhaps if Truman was from Florida, maybe we get the Iron Curtain speech at the Orange Bowl, but it wasn't meant to be. Um, and And that's largely it for the trip. Churchill... Um, concludes the speech and heads back to the UK, um, takes his position as um, leader of the opposition, and eventually will return to uh, the seat of governmental power as prime minister in the 1950s. Um, It was a a bit of an awkward time out of power. Uh, His successor um, is actually remembered equally fondly among many uh, uh, English and, and, and United Kingdom um, citizens for instituting a widespread social um, uh, social policy that uh, creates the National Health Service and other um, parts of the social safety net that Churchill 
wasn't super keen on, but it had become so popular by the time Churchill returns that he doesn't really go after it. And so the two parties to I, what I find interesting to take it all across the pond before we come back to Miami is these two men, very different political ideologies, had been forced together by war. And this very disruptive election in 1945 will eventually create the circumstances where they're kind of forced together in peace, that Churchill will institute some conservative policy when he returns, but a lot of that liberal social safety net remains. Uh, and so this period in the history of England um, is so important for kind of creating a, a what we would call here in the U.S. a bipartisan consensus. And really that bipartisan consensus, both on foreign policy and domestic policy, Miami plays a really significant role in this middle ground for Churchill. Very interesting. And, and really this whole conversation across all the different statesmen and some of the similarities of their visits uh, have, have really um, kind of been highlighted in this conversation. So uh, Matthew, I appreciate uh, you and I getting together. Hopefully we can do this again on, on a variety of other topics. Uh, but uh, I do want to thank all the listeners out there that have stuck with us. And uh, I will uh, remind you that if uh, um, whatever podcast platform you have, uh, feel free to look up the, the uh, uh, This Day of Miami History podcast. Is that right? Did I yes. get that? Okay. And I... be sure to look up the Miami History podcast, the simpler named Miami History <laughs> podcast of Casey Paquettes, which is fantastic. Yeah. And, and please, you know, add those to your favorites. Uh, we will be putting out um, uh, episodes as content uh, allows. And uh, but we do want to say thank you for uh, sticking with us and, uh, and, and listening to this uh, very fascinating conversation. So thank you. Thank you. First off, again, I want to thank Casey for his time and the incalculable amount of time that he has dedicated uh, over many years to recording the vital history of Miami and surrounding regions. Again, there really isn't a this day, as you know it, without Casey and his work at miami-history.com. I also encourage you to find him on Facebook. Uh, just search Miami History. Uh, the group there has thousands of members. Uh, if you're listening to this, you probably are already a member, but if you're not, please go and search that out. And speaking of which, if you are a regular Miami History Podcast listener who's listening to me for the first time, um, first of all, welcome. Second off, I, I hope you enjoyed what you heard. And, and third, I hope you stick around and check the back catalog. We do have a lot of episodes. Uh, we release at least once a month, barring illness or injury. And um, most episodes are a little bit closer to a half hour on a single topic. But again, this was too good of an opportunity to pass up with Casey and myself. We, we decided to go a little bit long. So if you want to know more about This Day in Miami history, uh, you can visit our website, thisdaymiamipod.com, or uh, visit This Day Miami Pod at pretty much any social media platform. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on Mastodon um, as well. Um, you can find us there and uh, keep up with regular episodes, keep up with other podcasts that uh, we're really digging uh, that relate to Miami history and, and really anything else, pictures, news, uh, anything that's relevant to Miami history, we, we try to cover on the socials. Uh, but again, thisdaymiamipod.com or uh, find This Day in Miami History on your preferred podcast platform. And if you really, really like it and you'd like to be really, really nice, uh, make sure to leave us uh, positive feedback on your preferred podcast platform. It helps other people find the show. A lot of people have been finding the show in the last few weeks, which is just fantastic. Uh, and I hope you are one of those folks that are finding it and you decide to stick around. And if you have decided to stick around and listen to our show already, well, thank you so much. Uh, because listener feedback and listener engagement is really what 
keeps the show going. Um, I love to hear from people that love the show. Uh, and I love to know that more and more people are, are learning more about Miami history. So without further ado, again, thanks to Casey Paquette. Uh, thank you to uh, the Associated Press Newsreel Archive, which was invaluable for the audio in today's episode. And most importantly, thank you, the listener. And until next time, I've been Matthew Bunch. The high times and low times, all in the nightlife. I am a surprise, will open your eyes. But when the day breaks, you feel the sun kiss. If it's paradise on what you wish. When you mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.